welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute Impri New Delhi A very good evening to one and all. I welcome you all to episode three of State of the Environment hashtag Planet Talks, organized by the Center for Environment, Climate Change, and Sustainable Development of Impact and Policy Research Institute. With me, Simi Mehta. Our special guest for today is Mr. Ashish Kothari, who would be sharing his insights on eco swaraj towards a rainbow recovery for justice and sustainability. It is my privilege to introduce to you Mr. Ashish Kothari, founder member of Kalpavriksh, an organization which deals with environmental and developmental issues. Mr. Kothari is an environmentalist who passionately works on the development environment interface and biodiversity, both at policy and action levels. Mr. Kothari has been a member of the steering committee of the World Commission on Protected Areas and IUCN Commission on Environmental, Economic, and Social Policy. He has been the co-chair of the IUCN Inter-Commission for Strategic Direction on Governance, Equity, and Livelihoods in Relation to Protected Areas. He has served on the steering groups group of the Convention on Biodiversity Alliance, ICCA Consortium, and Greenpeace International. Mr. Kothari has also been part of the several committees of Government of India as well, such as the Environment Appraisal Committee on River Valley Projects, Committee to Assess Implementation of Forest Rights Act, Committee to Draft the National Wildlife Action Plan and India Biodiversity Act, etc. Mr. Kothari has a number of books and articles to his, uh, pu- published to his uh, credit. Incidentally, just today, he has published an article in the Hindu, which closely coincides with the topic that he would be discussing today. Mr. Kothari has taught at the uh, Indian Institute of Public Administration and has been a guest faculty at several universities and institutes. He has been a Mellon Fellow at Bowdoin College in the US. With these few words, I would like to invite Mr. Ashish Kothari to share his insights. Mr. Kothari, over to you. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, you are not audible, sir. Uh, is it just with me or with others? Can you check, Ritika, Arjun? Yes, sir. Is not audible. Can you hear me now? Yes. 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 Perfect. Thank you, sir. Okay, something wrong with this. Okay. Um, sorry about that. So uh, thanks no problem, and uh, thanks to Impri and India Water Portal for this opportunity. I think it's a very uh, appropriate time for us to be discussing these issues, given the kind of crises, multiple global crises that we're going through, including, of course, the the one we're in currently. Uh, and the fact that all governments, including the Indian government, is talking about and trying to do something about recovery. And it's a very uh, good time to actually be talking about what is the kind of recovery 
that we want? Do we want to go back to what was supposedly normal or do we want to try and change course in some fundamental way? So that's what I'd like to talk about. Uh, if I can share screen, I'll uh, start my presentation. please go ahead. Is this yes. okay? Yes, yes. It's full screen? Yes, it is full screen, sir. Okay, all right. So uh, I, I think it will become clearer. Uh, we have uh, many parts of the world, people are talking about a Green New Deal in the US and UK, Europe, it's become quite popular, including through some mainstream politicians like Bernie Sanders and so on. Um, and now there's some talk about a global Green New Deal. The reason I try and change that into what I call a rainbow new deal or a rainbow transformation or a rainbow recovery is because I think there are multiple different colors or hues or dimensions of the transformation. And that's what I'll be trying to uh, convey in this talk. So um, just as a very quick background, I don't want to dwell on the problem parts of it too much because most people are familiar with it, but we do know that uh, the mainstream development, especially which has been intensely focused on economic growth as a driver of change, uh, has been enormously violent towards the rest of nature, as you can see in this image. It's also been violent towards communities, especially those who are directly dependent on nature, like farmers and uh, indigenous people, Adivasis, tribals, uh, pastoralists, fishing communities, craftspersons but also in many ways against us uh, too, even those of us who are privileged enough to live um, in a city uh, with all our comforts. Uh, it's also been violence against cultures in many ways, the, the form of westernized modernization that we have mostly adopted across the planet has uh, subjugated or displaced an enormous diversity of cultures across the world. Now we are told that this form of development might be somewhat damaging, but it is necessary in order to move people out of poverty and to provide livelihoods and jobs and so on. But what we've seen actually on the contrary is that it has created enormous insecurity and vulnerability as we see in the COVID times where uh, hundreds of millions of jobs uh, have been lost or are in the process of being lost, where in India, uh, tens of millions of workers uh, were suddenly without jobs and had to go back home. Uh, and this vulnerability is to my mind, a direct outcome of the fundamental flaws in the development model itself, which has created this in incredible amount of inequality that you see uh, in the graphs here, and which enables, for instance, in a, in a country as poor as India to have the world's largest single family house. I think most of you on this call will know whose house that is, India's richest man. In many ways, also this process of uh, modern, this process of modernization and economic globalization and development has also meant violence against each one of us in terms of our own personal lives, lifestyles, our, uh, our spirit, our ethics. And in so many ways, what you see is where livelihoods that were, like I said, dependent on or related to nature and natural resources are being destroyed at a very large scale the new jobs that are being created in the moderns in much of the modern sector are uh, very, very mechanical. They're part of large uh, manufacturing systems or service systems with very little creativity built into them. And so I call this process of this double, this twin sort of uh, change that has taken place a movement from livelihoods to deadlyhoods. Uh, and I can, we can go further into that in the discussion if anybody's interested. Finally, I think it's very important to realize that the COVID interregnum, this, this period that has begin, been given to us over the last few months and will last another few months, 
is a period in which either we can go down the same path and become much worse, as is happening in many governments, many countries, including India, where the state is becoming more authoritarian, it's using COVID as kind of an excuse for more surveillance, etc. Um, and uh, corporations are making even more profits, like you see the figure on the on the image there. Or we actually realize that there's fundament, something fundamentally wrong with our system, that the flaws uh, in the system are so deep that we have to change it uh, in a, in a fun basic way rather than just tinker around a little bit and try and move towards more equality, more justice, more sustainability. And that's the, the second part that I'll focus on now. I think there are two elements to that, uh, that pathway. One is resistance against the structures of inequality, injustice, and unsustainability. It's not enough to simply say that, okay, we can keep pro uh, producing waste, but we'll recycle it. Or we can keep uh, emitting carbon, and we will try and capture it somewhere and do carbon trading. That is all superficial ways of dealing with the problem. A deeper and fundamental way is to look at what are the kinds of uh, inequalities in power, for instance, or the concentrations of power in the hands of nation states, in the hands of uh, capitalist corporations, in the hands of men vis-a-vis -vis women, in the hands of some castes versus other castes, and in the hands of humanity as a whole in relation to the rest of nature. We have dominated all the whole earth uh, as if we are the only species that is supposed to live on this planet. In all these ways, it's these structures uh, or structural systems that have to be challenged. And that resistance, which we are seeing in many parts of the world, whether it's this image, which is from 30 years back, where Adivasis in central India protested against two mega hydro projects. And in the protest, what they were saying was, uh, we're not protesting simply because our homes will be lost. We're protesting because you are shackling our mother. The river is our mother. You know, so there's two very different civilizational ways of looking at nature. One of, the, one of us looks at it as mother, father, as something we are within and which is, which in a sense is, is the womb we live in. Uh, and the other, which looks at nature as pure commodity, as something to commercialize and, and make products out of. Uh, and to me, this form of resistance is very important because it tells us that there are other ways of looking, other ways of uh, being, other ways of knowing, other ways of dreaming. But also simultaneously what's very crucial is constructive alternatives to meet human needs and aspirations. It's not enough to simply say we want to be where we are because there is, of course, unemployment, there is deprivation, there is poverty, there is hunger. So we have to deal with it. And what we have fortunately in India and many other parts of the world, literally thousands, maybe tens of thousands of examples from small to large, which show us how to do this, how to actually, for instance, grow food without uh, destroying the land with chemicals, um, how to create energy without uh, having to do coal mining and so on and so forth. Uh, obviously, we don't have the time to go into all of these. So I'll just give you a small, very small sample of these and I'll show you a website where uh, there are many, many, many more stories available. This particular story uh, is about 30 years old and to me is one of the most inspiring ones because it deals with multiple kinds of injustice. This is about 5,000 Dalit and Adivasi women farmers in Telangana who till about 25, 30 years back were facing hunger, deprivation, lack of access to schools, lack of access to uh, healthcare, and, and of course, all the, the social um, marginalization of being a Dalit and being a woman, right? Uh, in these last 30 years, they have actually formed themselves into Sanghas in about 70, 75 villages as part of this tech and development society group. And in each of the villages, they have 
done much more collective operations with regard to farming, uh, exchange seeds, created grain banks, brought back their traditional varieties of seeds, switched completely to organic. So they don't depend on the market for any input at all. They don't even depend on the government for any input. And so what they argue is that we don't want only food security. We want food sovereignty, annaswaraj, which means we have complete control over food. And there are different parts of different movements across the world which argue for energy sovereignty, water sovereignty, livelihood sovereignty, etc., where you say we take control back in our lives. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a few minutes. So this group of women has become so strong that not only have they eradicated their own hunger and deprivation, and incidentally, in these villages, there was no case of COVID in these uh, last few months. But also, they're in fact contributing to the relief work in the neighboring areas where there isn't adequate food or where there's landlessness and people don't have land to grow food on. And to the health workers and municipality workers and police workers who are dealing with the COVID crisis. Uh, the second example is from Central India. This is Forested Belt and more Adivasi, more tribal indigenous people who uh, have uh, formed Maha Gram Sabha, which means a federation of 90 villages, uh, to first of all fight against uh, mining operations that are being proposed in their area and other destructive so-called development activities, but also to reclaim their Adivasi identity, to reclaim their control over collective control over forests, to have much better, much more sustained livelihoods based on forest produce and their uh, fields, and also to empower women uh, to have an equal voice in the decision-making process in the Gram Sabhas and, and in the Maha Gram Sabha, and to assert their cultural identity as Adivasis, not as Hindus, Christians, Muslims, or whatever, but as Adivasis, which is very distinct. Um, and one of their slogans emerging from another example from the same district in Gachiroli is that while we elect the government in Delhi and Mumbai, in our village, we are the government. And I'll come back to that when I talk about the notions of direct democracy. To take a quick uh, example from an urban area, this is uh, Bhuj, uh, a town in uh, the headquarters of Kutch district in Gujarat, uh, where several colonies have moved towards much greater self-reliance with regard to things like housing, water, now also beginning to get into energy and so on. And um, through that process, uh, also claim a greater voice in the planning and budgeting of the city because they're arguing that if we are the ones who are supposed to be beneficiaries of urban planning, why are we not involved in that planning? So again, the argument that there has to be much more direct forms of democracy. We can't leave it to bureaucrats and politicians to, uh, to make the plans for, for us. Um, quickly moving into a few examples from other parts of the world. Uh, firstly, a little bit about this map, because I find this map fascinating because it's supposedly upside down. It's not because if the earth is round, then it depends on where you're looking at the earth from. Uh, but it's a map that is very decolonizing. There is so much in our brains uh, and hearts, which are part of our colonial heritage, including the language I'm speaking right now. But also, for instance, our maps, uh, the map we're used to is where Europe is shown on top and is shown to be much bigger than it physically actually is. So here you see the actual sizes of the continents and Europe becomes much smaller. Um, but the other reason I'm putting up this map is to also point to a number of similar examples from different parts of the world. And I'll show you the cover of a book that we recently came out with, which uh, has a hundred examples of these kind of systemic or radical alternatives. Again, some very small, some very, very large. 
just to give you a couple of examples of the ones uh, I'm somewhat familiar with, this is uh, part of the Amazon in, in Ecuador where the Sapara indigenous people have claimed um, a full territorial control over, over their uh, hundreds of thousands of hectares of the Amazon forest. And what they're doing now attempting to do is to retain their own cultural and spiritual and ethical connections with the forest and also protect the forest from mining and oil exploration but also go into a relatively modern sector like ecotourism, completely controlled by them, where they try and give visitors a sense of the way they live, their language, their culture, their relationship with the forest and so on. And through that also earn some kind of a livelihood. The second example, and to me even more inspiring is the attempt by the Kurdish people, an ethnic community, which is kind of stuck in the midst of Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria, so the most war-torn area of the world um, for a long time. But they have tried to create an area of, uh, of peace and of a very ra uh, radical direct democracy where every local community or, or, or commune is takes its own decisions and then they build larger uh, scales of decision-making based on that local decision-making process, very heavily based on women's uh, leadership and on thinking of things from an ecological uh, point of view also. And in fact, if you look at many parts of the world, people are arguing that what we need in terms of a recovery from COVID is not to go back to bailing out big corporations and big banks and aviation industry and so on, but actually to support these sorts of initiatives and to make them much wider. That is local self-reliance, etc., which is unfortunately not happening. And if you look at the so-called Atmanirbhar Bharat package, it's in completely the different direction. It's more about privatization, more what, what the big players will get and not really what will actually provide self-reliance to small producers and, and communities. So putting all these sorts of examples together, um, we talk about uh, eco Swaraj or Prakritik Swaraj or, or radical ecological democracy. Very simple concept that wherever we are, whether we are in a village or an urban neighborhood or a school or a college or an NGO or whatever collective that we are part of, we are part of decision making. We don't leave it to somebody else to take decisions. We should be in, we should claim the inherent power in us to have a voice, to be part of decision making. But it, when we do that, we should also be responsible to others who also want to live their lives happily. Right. And by others, I also mean other species. So in that sense, the notion of justice, social justice, environmental justice, and the notion of um, interdependence and respect for the rest of nature gets built into this process of democracy. So it's very different from the liberal, neoliberal forms of democracy that we're used to where, you know, we think uh, going to elections once in five years is democracy. That's not it. What these communities are telling us is that it's where we claim the power. Um, and there are similar notions in many different parts of the world. Some of them coming from ancient uh, indigenous peoples, times, local communities, such as the ones you see on the screen here from different parts of the world. Some of them emerging from industrial societies, people who are sick and tired of the way in which industrial societies are consuming more and more and more and destroying the earth and saying, no, we need to actually have degrowth and not growth, which means scale down material and energy consumption that we need to recommonize and move away from privatization, which has affected all of us, that we need to move, you know, we need to bring uh, a feminist perspective, women's leadership into the role. So many different kinds of worldviews, concepts, practices that are coming up in different parts of the world. 
So to end uh, with the framework, and then I'll finish in the next two, three, four minutes. Um, the way I see it, uh, and the way we see it in a process that we call Vikalp Sangam, and I'll talk about that at the end, is that we need these fundamental transformations in at least five different spheres of life. So if you take the top right-hand side, it is the argument that uh, the uh, villagers in Gachiroli or the colonies in Bhuj were saying, which is that we should be the ones who are governing our localities or our areas and not somebody from outside, neither elected representative nor corporations or bureaucrats or whatever. Of course, we will make them responsible and accountable towards us, but we should be the ones who are the decision makers uh, at the core of the process, which also then means that if we want to be responsible towards others and their freedom and autonomy and, and their uh, rights to decision making, we need to start being, you know, thinking of Swaraj as a, as a way of autonomy with responsibility, rights and responsibilities put together. And you stretch that notion further, you'll find that, in fact, we begin to even question current political boundaries, because many of them make no ecological or cultural sense. If you take South Asia, because of colonial history, the divide between India and Pakistan or India and Bangladesh, or even earlier between India and China, etc., um, they have cut intact ecological systems into two. The Sundarbans forest in Bangladesh, the desert uh, or the mountain areas between India and Pakistan or, so, or the, uh, the, the Tibet uh, Ladakh plateau between India and China, which means wildlife that used to move back and forth, nomadic communities that used to move back and forth, trade that used to happen earlier has all been disrupted. And can we reimagine political boundaries to think of these ecological units as being uh, areas of decision making. So that's all the political sphere on the top right hand side. The right hand side one is economic democracy. So for instance, where the Dalit women arguing for food sovereignty, Anna Swaraj, similarly movements around the world are saying, when it comes to production, we should be as producers, we should be in control. It can't be a capitalist owner. We work for a capitalist owner and he or she goes away with all the profits, nor can it be the state. So it's not even about state uh, institutions. It's really about producers being in control and us as consumers being in control also. When we go to a market and buy something, we often don't even know what's in it, where it comes from, what will be the impact somewhere else on the environment or on people, and what will be the impact on our own bodies. We often don't even know that. So to have economic democracy, we need that localized, decentralized control. The third crucial sphere of transformation is social justice because you can localize power, you can localize the economy, but then you may, might end up with something like the Kap Panchayats of Haryana, which are extremely patriarchal, extremely uh, casteist. So we also need the struggles for social justice, for removing casteism, for removing gender inequality, for multiple sexualities, multiple genders, for removing the discrimination against uh, so-called disabled people, etc. And of course, given what's happened in UP in Hathras just a few days back, it's so so fresh in our mind. The pain and the need for social transformation is so pain, so clear in our mind. The fourth sphere, the bottom left-hand side, is, is of cultural and knowledge diversity and knowledge commons. We've had in this process of economic modernization and globalization a, a process of privatizing everything, including ideas. Everything is patented, intellectual property right, copyrights, etc., etc. Whereas, in fact, knowledge should be in the commons. It has, in fact, for most of human history, most knowledge has been in the commons. People have exchanged things with each other quite freely. 
And that's what the open source software movement, for instance, is, uh, is exactly about. But also cultural diversity. In India today, we face the threat of one religion trying to impose itself on all, other, on all others, which we have to resist and say that, no, India is a, is a civilization that has always absorbed and welcomed multiple different faiths, multiple ideologies, multiple ways of doing and being, and that has to be respected. And multiple languages. We still have 780 living languages in India. And that, that needs to be sustained. It, it can't be sustained if in our schools we only teach Hindi or Marathi or uh, Punjabi or Sanskrit or whatever. It also needs to be in Gondi or Kui or whatever other local languages there are. And finally, the fifth sphere, of course, uh, on the top left hand side is of ecological resilience. Without protecting the earth, we're all dead anyway. However rich and powerful and famous we might be, we're all going to face it. And we see that right now with COVID crisis and the climate crisis. At the center of this flower of transformation, um, and that's my last substantive side, is a set of values. And I think that's the most important part of this whole story. Sometimes people ask me, how do we replicate a tech and development society somewhere else or a, a butch, you know, a urban transformation somewhere else? I don't believe in replication. I also don't believe in scaling up. That's a very corporate model. Unfortunately, many NGOs are also prone to that. You just get bigger and bigger and become bureaucracies in yourself. Um, what I talk about is scaling out, which means you learn the principles from what these Dalit women farmers have done or what the communities in, uh, in uh, Bhuj have done and apply those in one's own context. Modify them, look at what's our own cultural roots, our own ecological situations, economic situations, and modify them using these sorts of principles. For instance, the principle of working as a collective, as a commons, rather than competition and privatization, or the principle of rights and responsibilities, uh, or as Gandhi used to say, duties first and then response and then rights, uh, or the principle of not just human rights, but also rights to the rest of nature, or the principle of thinking and acting non-violently. There's so many different ways in which we can think of this. And of course, the manifestation of these might be different in different parts of the world. But there is some kind of a common thread of these common ethics that run through a lot of the uh, wonderful transformations that I've, I've spoken about. How do we get to such a situation of eco Swaraj? Obviously, that's a very difficult question. There are no easy answers. I think we need to have much more networking of both resistance and alternative movements together. We need to um, respect and facilitate the agency of those who are most marginalized in uh, you know whether it's women or children or landless or adivasis or disabled or whatever we need to act both for fundamental transformation like i've argued but also for transitions and this means for instance policy shifts the struggle for right to information the struggle for right to food um, the struggle for greater transparency of the government etc these are all transitional moves towards that kind of transformation. Uh, and these transitional moves of, for instance, policies for organic farming can help to spread these kind of initiatives much, much uh, more. We need to link the local to the global in many different ways. And finally, and I think this is really important, we should never lose sight of the fact that we must dream. We must build our own, our, our collective utopias, because without having ideal visions in mind, we don't know whether we're heading in the right direction. So to end, uh, this is a, there are a couple of processes that we have initiated, which try and bring a lot of these movements and groups together to kind of learn from each other, collaborate, share, become more of a critical mass, do collective visioning. 
one is called Vikalp Sangam, and we've been doing physical conferences and gatherings over the last many years. We're also documenting uh, hundreds of different stories. So this is the website uh, where there are, I think, about 1,500 stories and perspectives of this kind of transformation in many, many different aspects of life. And then at a global level also last year, we initiated something where similar kinds of movements in different parts of the world can talk to each other, learn across cultures, across geographies, and create again more collective, uh, more of a macro uh, change that is that is required. A um, couple of books that uh, that bring a lot of this out. The one on the left, Alternative Futures, is where 40 people experienced in their own field of whether it's education or health or sexuality or gender or conservation or uh, Dalits or Adivasis or pastoralists have uh, dream the future of India in 2047 or 2100 and then come back down to earth and said, how do we get there? What are the pathways of getting to such a future? The one on the right is the global book with a hundred examples uh, of transformations happening in different parts of the world. And let me end with this slide, which I really like this uh, quote from an uh, Argentinian filmmaker, Fernando Birri, quoted by the famous uh, poet uh, Eduardo Galeano that utopia is on the horizon. Okay, I see it and I move closer to it, but it moves away. And every time I move 10 steps, it moves 10 steps further away. So I never get there. So what's the point of utopia? It's precisely that we're moving. We're not stuck in one place. We're moving in a certain direction. And through that, hopefully, constantly improving our situation. So with that, uh, I'd like to thank you again. That's my email for somebody interested in continuing the dialogue and a couple of more websites that I would invite you to look at. Thanks, Simi. Um, I will stop share and we can have, uh, I can respond to questions or comments. Yes. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much, sir, for uh, such an enlightening discussion. Uh, so um, to go with the questions, um, um, there are a couple of um, curious questions that um, I, I find or I mean I would like more clarity about so when you talk about you know in the initial slides you spoke of livelihoods to deadlyhoods that was very interesting and uh, when you talk of uh, loss of uh, you know there's a lot of uh, insecurity among the human beings and uh, which is also leading to very little creativity as uh, things are progressing as um, generations are progressing so is this one aspect of uh, moving towards a deadlyhood or what are the other aspects and has this process of uh, livelihood to deadlyhood been uh, treated or experienced by humans uh, as a natural process and even taken for granted actually so Okay, yeah, thanks. Um, there are multiple different dimensions to this. Sorry, Simi, did you finish? Because I think you... Hello? Yes, yes, I'm going. Okay. You can hear me? Yes, I can. There's some echo that's happening. Okay, so uh, you can hear me, right? So uh, there are many different dimensions. Like I said, I think the two broad dimensions are firstly that those occupations that really were livelihood. See, the term livelihood is very important to understand. It is not a job. A livelihood is something that's part of your life. 
it's an occupation but it's also part of one's social cultural life it's part of one's it's an everyday kind of a thing so it's not like okay monday to friday i do a livelihood and then some saturday and sunday i do something else right so you know farmers and pastoralists and fishers and craftspersons they don't have this notion of weekdays and weekends that's a very western notion that's come to us those are being destroyed in huge numbers and destroyed not just physically but also socially in the sense that we are all taught when we were in school we were all taught that to be a farmer is to be low status it's it's primitive jobs those are jobs that have to be left behind right? they're not dignified etc so that's one part of the move to it's actually killing off livelihoods so that's also in that sense deadly good the second part is that the vast majority of jobs in the modern sector um are jobs where we we don't actually express our creativity you know unlike a crafts person like say a handloom person who's making something on the loom there's constant creativity that comes into it when i'm working on a computer in the middle of a huge massive it industry for instance i'm basically doing what somebody else is telling me to do i might be lucky enough to be part of a small creative team that's fine but the rest of us are basically just doing mechanical jobs which is why i find that in a lot of the alternative learning spaces for instance where i teach like say in bhumi college and so on half the people who are wanting to do something very different like go off into farming etc are it professionals okay so i am i'm only talking about it but of course this this is and that's for people in middle and upper classes and if you take the people in the so called lower classes like say the millions that are employed in factories in india and china there is absolutely no uh, job satisfaction you know you go you work morning to night and uh, it's extremely mechanical um, one of the handloom weavers young handloom weavers 30 year old handloom weavers in kutch who told me recently he said i used to work in a tata factory and there was another one who worked in adani factory and a third one who had gone off to the gulf and they all said we actually used to get better paid but the job was so boring and we had absolutely no free time whatsoever we we were not in control of our time we were not in control of our work that we just quit and we come back to handling where at least we have we have control so i think this is a very crucial aspect of what is a job what's a livelihood um in fact uh, david dreber a very well known uh, anthropologist who recently passed away tragically uh, he called it look it up if you can it's it's a article that became viral he called it bullshit jobs what we most of us unfortunately are stuck in the modern sector so i'm not i'm not therefore suggesting that everything in traditional is good and everything in modern is bad not at all i'm saying we have to figure out what really is a livelihood what where why should we have a distinction between work and leisure why can't work itself be fun why can't education be fun you know the original meaning of the word school sorry the original word that school comes from is khole s k h o l e from greek and it meant leisure learning with leisure imagine in our schools in india today where does leisure come in it's all they're all prisons so i think we have to do a lot of uh unlearning a lot of rethinking in order to figure out this whole livelihoods and deadlyhoods kind of thing and then how do we make occupations whether in traditional or in modern sector much more dignified much more fun much more uh, secure that is really what a uh, rainbow recovery should be about thank you sir uh, thank you for your comments uh, so uh, you have uh, 
uh, very recently uh, in august 2020 it was uh, i suppose that um, the un secretary general uh, he criticized uh, india's uh, subsidizing of fossil fuels and also promotion of coal auctions so how do you see uh, india's continual reliance on fossil fuels on the uh, one hand as a source of meeting its energy needs vis-a-vis uh, -vis this uh, criticism and of course the need for india to phase out on the usage and also how do we ensure that we move towards a sustainable environment given the fact that there's a huge section of india society you know you mentioned the indigenous people the pastoralists who are all dependent upon forests and coal mines and and other similar areas that ensures their lives and livelihoods in in proper place so your take on this sir so i think uh, the energy i'm not an energy expert at all but uh, with what a little understanding i have i think there are two very crucial aspects to this firstly i think to call or three aspects firstly to call uh, the expansion of coal mining in central india as part of atmanirbhar bharat self reliant india is an absolute uh, travesty because what is happening is one is you're destroying some of the most biologically diverse and important forests of the country and displacing communities that are actually already relatively self reliant based on their forest resources and so on they'll be displaced they'll they'll become industrial labor or urban labor or whatever it is and and become completely non self reliant um second so yes we have energy needs where do we meet them from and that there are i think two important question uh, issues one and this is something the indian government has not worked on at all how much energy demand is actually legitimate and justified that's a huge question we have to ask ourselves because the second part of the answer which is to say we have to move towards renewable energy and i can i can at least whatever little i know i think it's very viable to do that will not succeed if we don't answer the first one because even renewable energy needs land needs resources needs water if it's solar it needs silica mining some resources from somewhere have to be taken so if our energy demands is keep going up and up and up and up exponentially then there is no way anything is sustainable whether it's fossil fuels or it's solar or it's wind or anything like that and we see that we see with the mega solar parks and the mega wind energy parks that are coming up in different parts of the country they are already creating enormous destruction both ecological and uh, social and, and people's displacement so what does this mean it means that for instance people like you and i have to in our personal lives actually start asking ourselves how much energy do we really need can we do make our chutney using our old patthar ka thing or do we need a mixer to do that always i'm just giving you one small example but there's tons of examples if i'm going 3 kilometers can i cycle and not use my gaadi or motorcycle or whatever it is etc those are personal lifestyles but there are bigger issues of the way in which production and consumption happens the the policies relating to that the social pressures relating to that the advertising related to all of that which need serious reconsideration we have to scale down our energy demands for those of us who are in the elite and rich sectors and that's why the argument in europe is growing about degrowth that europe as a whole needs to degrow by a factor of 10 one tenth of their current consumption of material and energy has to is is what is sustainable it does not mean depriving ourselves of anything it means radical reconfiguration 
So for instance, let's take, uh, sorry, I'll just, last thing I'll say here. The way we make construction in cities, our modern construction is designed to be energy intensive. You need air conditioning inside or heating depending on where you are. If you look at a lot of uh, alternative architecture, some coming from tradition and some that is new, you'll find that in fact, energy consumption can come down by a 10th in this in as comfortable a, a, a space and, and in fact probably designed much more aesthetically and beautifully right uh, in in Ladakh, there's a school called sec mall a learning center called sec mall became very famous because its uh, founder was the inspire inspiration for the uh, for the main character in three idiots the film huh? so sonam mangchukle when he set up sec mall he said i'm going to use as little energy as possible that's a place where the 100 and 200 or 200 people study and learn and it uses no active solar inside there's no heating when it's minus 30 degrees outside inside the building it's warm because they've used passive solar uh, architecture which traps the sun during the day and doesn't let it out at night so you don't need to create new power plants for that so i think we need this combination of of course renewable energy and now it's much cheaper much more viable much more feasible despite what everything everybody says and but also uh, seriously questioning the total demand and redistributing the energy to those who, don't, who actually don't have it away from those who are using too much. Sure. Thank you so much, sir. Um, the last question from my side and before I hand over to Dr. Arjun Kumar would be, yes, sir, um, what kind of investment investments do you think would uh, the realization of eco swaraj require uh, for instance uh, you know the food swaraj that you you've spoken about that for every citizen how would we ensure that uh, to realize this some this sort of uh, an eco swaraj the human greed for profit would not take the center stage going ahead your views sir yeah i think uh... I mean, I think the biggest transformation we need is really a cultural shift. It's a mind shift, uh, intellectual and cultural shift. And that will become easier the more we realize uh, the impacts of the way we live or the way we do things. Very often we're not uh, even, like I said, you know, you can go and shop something and buy something from the market and we don't know where it's come from, what the impacts are, who has grown it, who has made it. When we throw away the the packaging, where is it going? Who is you know uh, being affected by it, etc. The more we build in this kind of what's called ecological intelligence, uh, which means to give you an example, now on our cigarette packets we have these huge and ugly warnings, right? That it could cause cancer and kill you, etc. Let's have a information on every product, the packaging, or at least on every product, saying where is it? What is the ecological impact of this? The more we do this and the more we build it into our education system also, right from childhood, the, child, the, the, the children are aware of this kind of thing, the more we will be one more responsible in our own lifestyles, but secondly, also demanding, collectively demanding policy shifts that are, uh, that are necessary. So yes, it's a very difficult battle because uh, like somebody has asked this question, how do we educate the masses? I don't know what the masses are, but uh, you know, I think different kinds of education is needed in different kinds of people. For those who are not aware at all, it's relatively simpler because it's about making the information, creating the visuals, the different ways by which media by which you can reach people. The harder lot is the ones who are pretending to sleep or not be aware. 
like gandhi said it's easy to wake up somebody who's sleeping very difficult to wake up somebody who's pretending to sleep and that's the bigger issue because though the decision makers that we have it's not as if people in government and corporations are not aware of what these issues are what the impacts of their uh, of their decisions are of course they are there's such strong structural vested interests in the in uh, state domination patriarchy capitalism etc that they don't want to or are unable to change and this is where people like us become very important because we have to show firstly that that we we don't want that system we're resisting it but secondly here's a viable alternative and the more we do that the more maybe even governments will change some state governments for instance have taken decisions to move completely to organic farming sikkim andhra etc so we have to push in this sort of double way also for creating the cultural shifts in our lives and if at all we have to copy the west let's look at some of the positive things that are happening there if you go to amsterdam or to almost any of the big cities in europe now you'll find businessmen in three piece suits cycling to work now in india a businessman would think oh my god that's low status how can i cycle to work not possible and there they say no that's fine it's it's fine for us to do that in fact it's become a bit of a statement also so you want to copy something let's copy something like that and not everything else we've been blindly copying and destroying ourselves in the prospect thank you very much sir uh, so i invite dr arjun kumar would you like to go ahead with your questions yeah yes, and there so are questions the that box, are coming I'm on the chat to, box also yeah i'm trying yes, to respond yes. to some as much as i can but uh, yes if i miss out some then no problem okay. yes thank you thank you very much sir for uh, presenting your ideas and thoughts here uh, a rainbow new deal uh, really is rainbow in 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 all the aspects uh, uh, be decentralization or social inclusion uh, i really wanted to focus on uh, sir has uh, uh, shared with us many aspects uh, radical democracy ecological resilience economic democracy cultural social justice and also values and uh, one thing which i have also noted that we must dream and the collective utopia part especially uh, right now uh, sir was also sharing that pretending to sleep and this direction is uh, important some policy and impact related uh, queries or uh, just a discussion point i i had to uh, that uh, one of the focus of uh, sustainable development goals goal 12 is the responsible consumption and uh, uh, production Uh, how do you think uh, india as a country or the subcontinent is moving in that regard and uh, how can this rainbow new deal can accelerate this process uh, of our targets towards this very important goal goal uh, number 12 and next is sir uh, uh, my my query was related to finances when we are uh, talking about uh, this especially when you know the states are suffering gst and and many other there is federalism and many other issues are also coming and uh, whereas uh, so you have also written that uh, wealth tax and there can be other sources of revenue from where uh, we can do that in fact uh, uh, professor stiglitz has also suggested that 1% if we if we tax uh, around 1% of gdp can come 
by taxing the rich and and that can be that would be around 2 lakh crores the atmanirbhar package sir has rightly pointed out that uh, it's not yielding much in fact narega we raised the budget from 50000 crore to somewhere 80 to 90000 crores that is also not percolating down uh, in that sense where are we heading and can we also go uh, uh, like uh, green bonds uh, it's also a way of funding europe is doing and then then there is for law and many things they are able to do which we are not and uh, in that i also wanted to uh, ask uh, related to funding that uh, uh, what can be the best practices for poorer region in in now developing countries uh, oh, what can they sir uh, for the poorer regions in developing countries especially let us say jharkhand uh, odisha chatisgarh many parts of karnataka as well north karnataka uh how what what are the lessons for for resilience and this uh, uh, rainbow new deal for these area vis a vis cities have different sort of problems we all know but those are the more marginalized uh, thing uh, finally sir i just wanted to uh, uh, add this that uh, you also mentioned about scaling out and scaling uh, especially community led scaling uh that has been one of the problem which the central government niti aayog every on many meetings uh, uh, that has been the 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 worry uh, because as you get the formula then you can you know just replicate for example uh, the self help group, group scheme that that is we are trying also to scale but we have self help groups to the tune of uh, 80 80 80 lakhs but not many of them are active again for atmanirbhar uh, krishi this agricultural package also have this farmer producers organization those things also coming uh, what do you think if state would try to push for this kind of scaling that would work or rather that has to come through the communities and who who should take the lead and how it can be you know uh, 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 strengthen for impactful result uh, thank you thank you again sir thanks uh, thanks arjun so that's many questions i'll try and deal with them quickly sdg 12 is one just remind me again i've forgotten which one is which uh, sir it is uh, responsible consumption and production oh, yeah, right. okay. so uh, yeah i think uh, i mean i think the green new deal uh, sorry the rainbow new deal uh, does need to deal uh, very explicitly with uh, unsustainable processes of production and consumption both we can take maybe two sectors one in the primary sector and one in the secondary sector so let's take agriculture because that's the biggest sector for us in india um where uh, there are hundreds maybe thousands of examples of where low input organic locally relevant agriculture has been shown to be successful like the example that i gave that's one out of many and so uh, A, a responsible or a sustainable production pattern for agriculture would be where that kind of an agriculture is supported not the green revolution not the uh, gmos and hybrids and and uh, technology intensive credit intensive kind of uh, things and mind you the example i told you about was from a dry land non irrigated uh, low rainfall area so if it's possible there with completely local uh, initiative why should it not be possible everywhere right and we have in every agro ecological country of the, uh, of india we have examples of that right? that's uh, in a primary sector you can take a secondary sector like uh, let's say um i don't energy energy infrastructure and so what i just spoke about for instance how so if you were to say uh, massively increase renewable energy to replace fossil fuels instead of doing mega solar parks and mega wind parks you would one would say let's do it in a very decentralized manner 
every village, for instance, or every cluster of villages can have a solar microgrid. And again, there are examples of that in India, which are successful. Um, you can do uh, mini wind kind of thing, or you can do integrated renewable energy systems for every cluster of villages, which mixes and matches whatever is locally available, because what might work in one area may not work in another part of the country, right? Um, and what you do there is two things, very importantly. One, you replace fossil fuels and dirty energy. But secondly, you also create more democracy in the production and management and maintenance of energy. And that is so important because it reduces this crippling dependence that communities have on either governments or on increasingly on the private sector. So uh, that's the production part of it. With consumption, like I mentioned, I have an article which I can send you and you can pass it around called uh, uh, we, need a upper, we Need a Sustainable Consumption Line, which means, see, we have, a, we have a poverty line. Nobody should be below. Nobody should be eating less than a certain amount of food. Nobody should be having less than a certain amount of, uh, say, housing, clothing, etc., right? which is very important. The fact that it's not achieved is a separate issue, but we have that. What I'm saying is we also need an upper consumption line which means nobody should actually have the freedom to consume more than an X amount. Because when you do that, you're depriving somebody else. If I'm going to use air conditioners in every room of my house, which is what you see the elite doing in many cities in India, it is depriving somebody else where coal mining has happened because of that or a dam has been built or whatever it is, right? So what gives me the right to actually do that? Uh, and that's where this whole so-called free market thing is completely bonkers. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make ecological sense. It doesn't make social sense. So, um, and I'm not suggesting that the government impose this upper consumption line because that will be another form of state uh, domination. But we need to, through discussion and dialogue and social transformation, cultural change, we need to build this. You know, the old uh, ad, I think it was an Onida television ad, uh, owners, pride, neighbors, envy. Is that right? How about reversing it? Uh, Non-owners pride and neighbors envy, which means, yeah, I don't have a, I don't, I've lived, for instance, I'm just giving my example. I've lived without a refrigerator for the last 12, 13 years. My neighbors are not necessarily envious of us, but we can create the, the cultural conditions, especially through education, through, you know, talking to young people about it. And a lot of young children are actually very well aware of these issues and asking these questions. Yeah, if we can live without a refrigerator, then why can't I do it? They can ask their mothers and fathers saying, why can't we do that in our house? Why do we need so many appliances? Why do why can't we hand make the chutney instead of using a mixer? So I think that's the whole consumption part of it. But of course, the biggest, the biggest elephant in the room with consumption is the advertising industry. The advertising industry has more money than most countries in the world put together. And so uh, that has to be absolutely exposed, opposed, challenged, um, uh, and undermined in many, many different ways. You can do that in fun ways by actually redesigning the ads they're putting out to put the real truth behind it. Like when they say compliance, compliance is going to make your child grow six foot higher uh, or whatever it is, you actually put the real truth tweak it a little bit cleverly. I've been wanting to have an ad busters campaign for a long time. I need some creative minds to help me to do it. Um, so SDG 12 can only happen through all of this kind of stuff, which also means, by the way, if the UN is serious about it, it needs to say to governments, put an upper salary limit. If you have no upper salary limit, then we see the kind of inequalities and the kind of crazy consumption patterns that people have. 
including the house that I showed you of uh, Ambani, right? You put an upper uh, salary limit, that again also starts getting controlled to some extent. But I can send you the article where I've argued this out in much more detail. With regard to finances, um, I think we cannot move away from the fact that the rich need to be taxed much more. Now, Prabhat Patnayak has shown just a 2% tax on the richest 1% of India. Just 2%, okay? We're not talking about taking away most of the wealth. And an inheritance tax, because the way they will avoid the, uh, the wealth tax is to pass it down to their children. So an inheritance tax, put that together, you'll actually generate enough money to have universal healthcare, universal free education, universal uh, uh, food, that is through the Right to Food Camp, um, uh, Act, and employment guarantee for the entire population of India. So if the government is saying we don't have enough money, it's because they are not, they're simply not putting their foot down. In fact, last year, wealth tax was removed, uh, sorry, corporate tax was removed. And corporations are getting huge amounts of subsidies and being bailed out all the time. So why are we subsidizing the rich? It doesn't make any sense at all. So that's one huge way in which you can actually generate the finances to put into a rainbow recovery plan. Green bonds, etc. Yes, of course, all of these are important. Uh, there's been a Tobin tax suggested saying these all, all the financial transfers happening every minute, every second all across the world. Just put a 1% tax on that, you'll generate enough money for the whole world, for all the basic needs of everybody. Um, but one other very important thing here, and this is part of the democratization thing. See, one big problem with panchayats, with the 73rd Amendment and 74th Amendment, is that panchayats in urban ward areas, uh, uh, sabhas, do not have financial powers for the better part. They can't, barring a small teeny week here and there, they can't actually generate their own revenues, which means they're dependent on the government, which creates the same problems, right? So enable that to happen. All tourists going to any area, let the local community tax us. Yeah. If an industry is going and taking anything from a thing, let, uh, let the community tax the industry and get the revenues from it. That's what's happening with the Forest Rights Act. With the Forest Rights Act in central India, where communities have regained control over forests, they're actually either selling their produce themselves or taxing and taking fees from those who are taking it, which means now in many of those villages, they're generating a crore of rupees over three years or you know, and enough money to sustain all the migrant labor who come back into those villages because the community fund is robust enough. So we have to do uh, that kind of decentralized financial uh, powers also in order for this rainbow recovery to happen. When you talk about poorer regions, I think one of the important things, Arjun, is also to ask ourselves this question of what's poor and what's rich. Uh, we can't accept the conventional definition that if you're earning one and a half dollars a thing, or I think one takes on Alualia a long time back, so I don't know, 39 rupees a day or something like that, some ridiculous figure, then you're not poor. See, to me, poverty is about lack of access to basic needs. Could be food, could be water, could be housing, could be health, could be learning, could be any of these things, right? Earning. Uh, and if one takes that, then maybe, in fact, uh, some of us are as poor as, I mean, like, I don't have access to clean air living in Pune. Probably not even clean water. I don't know what I'm doing. So this does not mean, of course, that I'm as badly off as, say, some, somebody in Jharkhand who's really deprived in many other ways. But it's, a, it's important to discuss this thing of what is poverty. Then if you look at it that way, Jharkhand, Chhattisgarh, 
all of these places have incredible abundance of natural resources. But they have not been able to utilize them for their own uh, benefit because people from outside have been in control and taken these away, whether it's minerals or it's forest resources or whatever. Again, if all of those areas were given complete rights over their forests and their land and their water and so on, collective rights, not private rights, like the example I gave you from Garchiroli, you'd find dramatic changes taking place because right now the resources being taken away from there, sucked away from there, including by the forest department or mineral corporations or whatever, would actually stay there. And so you will find that where in fact money is an issue, this could be a major way of transforming uh, those regions. But secondly and importantly, to me, the opposite of poverty is well-being, not richness. And for well-being, the most important thing is how self-reliant and self-sufficient can we be. So if the Dalit women farmers are saying we have complete food security with us because we've taken control, across Jharkhand, Chhattisgarh and so on, through forests and land and water that they have, at least with food, water, energy, etc., they could be self-sufficient and self-reliant, which means they need much less money than what you and I do living in a city. So that is also part of the rainbow recovery, that you have to rethink, redefine also uh, what is well-being, what is rich, what is poor, and then what resources are available in which part of the country, including skills and talent, which are already available there, that could help to do this. Jharkhand, Jharkhand had a very interesting program called Jharkraft. I don't know how it's doing now, but for 10, 12 years it ran very well, where about 18, 20 traditional crafts were encouraged and three and a half lakh families actually earned much better livelihoods over a very short period of time through production within their own areas and being able to provide uh, either local or national level uh, marketing strategies with it, which they were also trained in, in handling. So that's what we need to do for those regions. Um, finally, with scaling out, uh, yes, I think the problem has been that SHGs, um, et cetera, the examples you gave, are examples of, uh, of replication. And like I said, I don't believe in either replication or in scaling up. Replication has this problem that it doesn't respect the diversity of the local situation. Okay. so. Whether an SHG runs or not, or how it runs well, is also dependent a lot on the local culture, the local history, the local caste dynamics, the local gender dynamics. Which means in order for a self-help group or something like that to work, you need a process. You don't need a project. You don't need the government coming in saying, okay, in five years, there'll be a thousand more SHGs and we will make them run. We will give them X amount of money. That's not going to work. You need a process of capacity, capacities to be built or rebuilt. Uh, based on the local situation. And this is why it's only where there has been either local leadership or a good civil society organization or a good government officer that has helped to catalyze this process and create the local institutional strength and capacity for them to sustain it that it has been successful. Elsewhere, they're just on paper. You know, Adarshgaon uh, Yojana in Maharashtra after uh, Anna Hazare's uh, example from Raligan Siddhi and one or two other villages, Hivre Bazar and so on, Maharashtra government said, let's apply this for the whole state and put up a committee and they said, okay, for every village to be in Adarshgaon, this is what needs to be done. One, two, three, four, five. 
Now, when you have those kind of straight-jacketed homogeneous solutions, they're not going to work. We need a process, not a project. We need not targets. We need uh, empowerment uh, to happen in every settlement. And that can be done if we have uh, the right attitude and the catalysts, uh, either local or from outside, can help to do that. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Simi? Yes, uh, so we are uh, just a little uh, past time. So, uh, yeah, what, so there. Yes, what yes. we can do, we can consolidate the questions. Yes. To sir, and sir can answer some of them. Yes, uh, actually, yes, yes, these are all, uh, we'll not take more than five minutes. Sir. Uh, so, there's one very interesting question uh, by Dr. Vibha Arora. Uh, who says that uh, the eco-swaraj vision conflicts with the dominating ca uh, capitalist trends as is very clear that appear to be to become irreversible with big corporations such as google uh, amazon etc controlling our lives and uh, while the concept of eco-swaraj is interesting but in india do we really need degrowth when 60% of our po uh, poverty stripping communities are not do not possess adequate energy water housing as you just mentioned uh, so, is degrowth a not centric idea? This yes, absolutely. I am glad you asked this question. So, this is why when I put up the slide about alternative worldviews mm -hmm. and so on, and this is why our book is called Blue Rivers, because I don't think uh, that any idea or approach emerging from one part of the world is necessarily applicable in another part of the world. I think degrowth as a concept and as a practice is relevant in all the what's called the global north. The global north means the rich anywhere in the world, which could include the rich in India. People like some of us on this call, we need degrowth. We should be degrowing. We're, we're consuming too much, right? Some of us at least. But for the 60-70%, you very rightly said, it is not degrowth is not the right approach. It would be unethical to go and say you need to uh, consume even less. And, but this means that it's not necessarily growth, but it could be redistribution. So moving the wealth away from those who currently own, so 5% of India has 95% of its wealth. Mm -hmm. Moving away from that 5% towards the others, and especially the most uh, deprived sections of population. And that's not just about money. It could be different forms of wealth or resources or uh, 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 infrastructure, etc. That redistribution, radical redistribution, is what is needed for those who are currently uh, deprived. And the examples I've given you are all examples from those who were deprived and marginalized at some point or other. They've taken up the agents, their, their own agency, they've shown initiative, they've been sometimes helped by outside NGOs or government. Uh, but through that, they've shown how without economic growth and development as we mean it, they can actually substantially transform their lives. I mean, if you go to the Deccan Development Society, women, I've been going for 25 years now, compared to what it was then and now, it's such a huge, such a mass. Every time I go there, I have tears in my eyes because you see the kind of confidence, the, the happiness, the satisfaction. The, you know, these are Dalit women who would not even be able to speak to anybody else 30 years back. Or 25 years back. So this is what I mean um, uh, is, is what, uh, what needs to happen. Uh, Thank you so much. And sir. So in India, it could be Swaraj or it could be so many Adivasi notions uh, of, of well-being which are there. Uh, there are many, many, even in India, many diverse, but not necessarily legal. 
Um, yes, uh, thank you, sir. Uh, the concluding question is uh, that uh, it is regarding the alternatives available to the current system. As you mentioned that uh, it is very important to have resistance, but also a viable alternative to move towards. But how, uh, you know, considering the how the crucial how crucial the role of our economic model is how do we move begin moving towards an alternative economic model and realistically um, how can this be implemented should it happen at the ma macro level in a country diverse as india or at um, the micro level so uh, anjali i think it's not an either or i think it needs to happen at all the levels it needs to happen at the level of a single person single family single village doing that kind of transformation because after all if you think of it for all of us what is most relevant and meaningful is what's happening around us you know what's happening in the us might in hit me or what has happened in up hathras of course does affect me emotionally uh, but it's my immediate surrounds that are the most meaningful where i can find a place to do things right so the local is very important it has to also happen at that micro it has to happen at that micro but making the macro transformations of course are also uh, very important because otherwise the macro thing will always be bearing down on the micro so that means at least two three things one like i said at a transitional phase arguing for and pushing the government towards more progressive uh, policies whether it's to do with agriculture or it's to do with crops or whatever unfortunately right now the government is going in completely a regressive direction but we have to maintain the civil society and public pressure for it to again sort of go into more progressive policy so those those are transitional things but fundamentally also arguing at the macro level for what should be you know even conceiving of what could be a macro economy that's a challenge it's not like everybody's got the answers already what would the world look like or what would india look like in a very different scenario is something we have to work on and we have to be able to present those scenarios in ways that are exciting interesting young people like you anjali should actually get inspired by that and say that yes over the next 30 years i will work for this and there'll be another 30 uh, young people who will work for it or my organization will push for this and so it's this combination of really grounded grassroots practice along with the macro visions and the resistance movements that are also macro like the national alliance for people's movements and jansarkar and so many others it's this combination that uh, hopefully will work and it's not a short term struggle i know that in my lifetime i'm not going to see a lot of these transformations taking place but you're young uh, anjali i know and uh, i think in your lifetime i'm hopeful that in fact we will see directions moving towards that let me end this by saying that um just a hundred years back if we had had this conversation obviously not online but in some other way uh, and somebody had said you know how do we defeat colonialism across the world such a strong power england is ruling half the world how do we defeat that and if i had said just keep resisting keep dreaming keep thinking of freedom keep arguing for it and it will happen somebody would have said most of people would have said oh you are just a dreamer but like john lennon said if more and more of us dream it actually can become a reality the same thing with with the women's uh, movement 100 years back or whenever when for instance somebody like rosa parks uh, did what she did in the us refused to you know get off a bus or refused to sit and get off the seat which was meant supposedly only for men or whatever something like that 
uh, sorry, for blacks and, and whites, um, and was beaten up and imprisoned and so on. It sparked a movement which actually then became much, much larger, much larger. And the fact that Anjali today are on this call, able to say this, is a result of a hundred years of women's movements. Otherwise, you'd still be uh, doing what patriarchy is telling you to do, which is not speak up, just do what you're told, etc. So I think trans huge transformations can happen, but they take time, they take patience, they take uh, perseverance. And my final hope, my biggest hope in all of this is people like you, the young people in the, in the world today who are raising their voices for justice, for climate justice, for social justice, for against CAA and, and blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, I think, again, if you can combine the visions with the resistance, there's a lot of hope for us. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much for your words of motivation. And uh, definitely, uh, we have a long way to go. And uh, yet our dreams, your dreams, your uh, thoughts would definitely be fulfilled you know, during some part of the time or another. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us today and for being so generous with your time. Yeah, we have exceeded 10 minutes. Thank you all for joining uh, Sir's lecture. It has been very, very scintillating and uh, we have uh, learned a lot. I thank India Water Portal, Team Impri, and uh, all of you who have been watching us live on Facebook and here on Zoom. Thank you and keep watching. Thank you all. Thank you I very much. My, have a very good my, Sorry, Simi, I put my email on the chat box if somebody wants to communicate later. And yes, thank you. If you can share the questions with me, then sure, sure. respond. Thank you so much, and sir. Thank you. Next time, Simi and Arjun both, please don't call me, sir. <laughs> we need to get out of that colonialism. <laughs> Have a good day. Have a good evening. Good bye, -bye. Bye. 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 Thank you. Thank you bye. so much. Bye. Bye.